Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It's Thursday, September 7th, 2017, and I'm Charlie Matessian, your host this week. You are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, we'll cover the politics surrounding Donald Trump's jaw-dropping deal with Democrats. Did Chuck and Nancy roll the Donald, or is there more there than meets the eye? Our first data point is three. That's the length in months of the debt ceiling extension agreed to Wednesday by the president. Not 18 months, as first proposed by Republican congressional leaders, not 12, not six, but three months. Then we'll discuss the president's recent move to end the Obama-era program known as DACA, which was designed to shield young undocumented immigrants, often referred to as dreamers, from deportation. Our second data point this week is nine. That's the number of paragraphs in former President Barack Obama's eye-catching statement in response to the Trump White House's decision to end DACA. 15% is our third data point. That's President Trump's target for the top corporate tax rate as the White House tackles tax reform. We'll explain what makes that such a curious number. But before we dive in, a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Politico's Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And as always, we love hearing from listeners, so send us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. So let's get started. Scott Bland is out again this week, but I am excited to bring in some of Politico's best and brightest talent this week. Naturally, by popular demand, we have uh, Nancy Cook here in the studio this week. Hey, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. We also have Isaac Dover, a noted Latin scholar, our chief Washington <laughs> correspondent, and the host of Politico's Off Message podcast. Noted, noted Latin scholar by my high school Latin teacher <laughs> on the days that he was not giving me a C. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got uh, two special guests who will talk to us by phone today. We've got Heather Cagle of our Congress team. Uh, and we've also got Carla Marinucci, who's calling in from California. And Carla writes our California playbook. So our first data point is three. On Wednesday, President Trump cut a deal with Democratic congressional leaders to raise the debt ceiling, fund the government for three months, and provide Hurricane Harvey aid. Now, it's important to note that this deal blindsided his congressional Republican allies, who began negotiations by asking not for a three-month extension, but an 18-month extension. And so uh, we're fortunate today to have Alabama's favorite daughter, (laughs) Heather Cagle, from our Congress team, uh, who's going to answer some questions for us. Heather, tell us a little bit about the deal in question. How did it happen and how blindsided were congressional Republicans? Well, you know, so yesterday, uh, Pelosi and Schumer put out this statement for the White House meeting and said, we are requesting a three-month debt limit lift, and that's it. We're not going beyond that. And Republicans on the Hill, they honestly kind of laughed it off and thought it was a joke. Paul Ryan, even at his press conference, said it was ridiculous. 
And they thought there's no way that Donald Trump, the president, is going to go for this. Why are they even putting it out there? They look silly, things like this. And, you know, a lot of Democratic lawmakers and aides that I talked to after thought that it was a joke, too. They thought that they looked silly. And one even texted me when the statement came out before the White House meeting and was like, it's clear Republicans and Trump will see right through our bluff. So I think everyone, even Schumer and Pelosi, were very surprised when Trump agreed to this in the meeting. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Republican response. That's what I'm really fascinated about. On, how about this way? On a scale of one to ten, one being Republicans were mildly annoyed and ten being absolute rage, how would you rate the response of rank-and-file congressional Republicans to the deal that went down? I would put it one to ten. I'd put it about 15. Um, wow. The interesting thing is that the rank and file are blaming Ryan and McConnell for this, not Trump. They're saying that Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader Mitch McConnell went in and didn't have a clear enough plan. They didn't sell Trump on their debt limit plan. And that's why Trump took the deal with Democrats, which is really interesting because in any other world, you think that they would blame the president, who's the one who actually agreed to the deal. So... Now they're coming out today and they're reeling from this, and they think that it gives Republicans a horrible negotiating position going into December. And a lot of people up here think that they're not wrong on that. I mean, Democrats feel really emboldened. They think they're going into December with the strongest position, and they're not only going to get what they want on a spending deal and probably the debt limit, but they're going to push for other things like some kind of reform to help dreamers who are facing this deadline to leave the country in six months. So rank-and-file Republicans are livid, and they feel kind of helpless at this point. They feel like there's nothing they can do, and so they're rebelling against their leadership instead of Trump, who's the one who actually agreed to this. And so how about on the Democratic side, then? Uh, Are they mildly pleased? Are they elated by this? Are they scratching their heads over this, thrilled? I mean, how would you describe that? So the Democratic side is actually a little bit more interesting to me because I think you would expect Republicans— to be mad about this. I mean, no one wanted to vote on the debt limit twice before the midterms. That's why Republican leaders were pushing to raise it 18 months out so they wouldn't have to deal with this again. I mean, it's a hard vote for Republicans to take. On the Democratic side, Republican leaders, Pelosi and Schumer, are obviously overjoyed. They went in, they asked for one thing, they got specifically what they want, and they didn't have to give anything up for it. But within the rank and file on the House side, Democrats are furious. I mean, There are several areas of the caucus that are mad. They think that Pelosi and Schumer should have pushed to fix the DACA program, which is the one that shields these dreamers, these young undocumented immigrants from deportation. They should have pushed to have that fixed this month as part of some must-pass legislation and think that Democrats gave up all of their leverage on that. There was actually even a secret meeting last night after votes. Um, I haven't reported that yet. I'm breaking that here, I guess. Um, of Democrats you. kind of trying to decide what to do, rank-and-file members. And then this morning, there was a whip meeting. Pelosi brought uh, Schumer and Dick Durbin in, who's the Senate minority whip, which is really rare. They don't normally cross the Capitol to come to House Democratic whip meetings. But the thinking was that she needed someone else to come in there and help sell this deal because people are so mad. And then Luis, Luis Gutierrez stood up and said that Democrats turned their backs on the dreamers. So there's still a lot of tension there. 
I don't think that they will vote against the bill, or I don't think that they'll go that far, but they are really upset. And so what are the lasting impacts of, of uh, yesterday's deal? I mean, how, uh, how long does this reverberate through the House? You know, that's a great question. Um, Republicans are trying to sell it like, look, we're clearing the decks until December, and that will allow us to focus on tax reform over the next few months. Um, (laughs) Other people are less optimistic about that. Tax reform is obviously hard to do. They haven't had a successful tax overhaul since 1986, so that's more than 30 years ago. But Republicans are kind of desperate to get that win. They feel like they need that win to go into the midterms, um, because if not, what do they have to sell to voters? The Obamacare repeal failed. They're not likely to get border wall funding. What are they going to tell voters they've done with control of Congress? So that's what they're selling. On the Democratic side, the leaders think that by punting all of this until December, that they will actually have some leverage in the tax reform negotiations, whereas they felt like they wouldn't have before if they cleared the debt limit now. Um, And so they think maybe they can get some kind of bipartisan effort. Again, a lot of people are skeptical about this, though. It's just so hard to do. Republicans and Democrats are so far apart. So that's kind of where everyone is pivoting now. But um, I don't know how long that will last. You know, the White House it's very unpredictable and they kind of control the agenda up here for better and worse sometimes. So, you know, we'll just have to see. Nancy, you've been watching, uh, closely watching the white house for months now. Why would the president do that? I mean, why would he throw his party under the bus like that? Well, one thing I think is interesting is that, you know, he's a New Yorker, so he actually knows Schumer and has a much deeper and longer standing relationship with Schumer than he does with, say, Mitch McConnell or Speaker Ryan. And and so I think that there was just a comfort level. He feels more comfortable with Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And then secondly, uh, you know, our colleague Josh Jossie had a really fun story that just posted uh, this morning about how you know, part of it was that Trump saw an opportunity to make a deal. And uh, Josh reported this morning that uh, Trump called Pelosi and Schumer this morning and was backslapping them and talking about how great the media coverage was and how he was so pleased that the media kept covering the fact that he had gotten this deal so quickly. Um, even though it's with Democrats, he doesn't care. It was like, I got the deal and the coverage is great and look at me. And so I feel like, uh, you know, for Trump, that's part of it. I mean, obviously, this really surprised people in the White House. I mean, Trump in that meeting in the Oval Office with the congressional leaders, which, by the way, was supposed to be totally a pro forma, just like welcome back from recess thing. You know, he cut off Secretary Treasury Mnuchin uh, mid-sentence as Mnuchin was laying out the rationale for postponing the debt ceiling. And so I feel like people in the White House yet again are sort of left aghast like, oh, wow, we thought we had a plan here. We thought we had agreed on something. And our boss just cut a deal with Democrats. Heather, you were uh, talking a little bit about the the frustration on the Republican side and the Republican conference and how much of it is directed toward towards uh, leaders like Paul Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell. I mean, ultimately, does this uh, undermine their uh, their control over their members? I mean, what what is where does this end up? Does this end up in, uh, you know, a challenge to Paul Ryan down the road? Or what is the, uh, where does this go? You know, I mean, I think that's a great question. And that's a question that kind of lingers at all times, um, particularly because the House Freedom Caucus likes to flex its muscle. And they're the ones for, you know, responsible for unseating Boehner or helping get that started. 
Um, there was some chatter last night that House Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows had chatted with Steve Bannon, who's an ally of him and a foe of Ryan, and um, they had started talking about potential replacements in case there was a conservative rebellion against Ryan or anything like that. But I think a lot of that is honestly overblown. Ryan enjoys broad support within the caucus, and, you know, a lot of people see the job that he has. They know it's tough. They think that he is doing the best given the unpredictability that comes from the White House. And there's not anyone else kind of in waiting that could do what he does, most of the caucus thinks. Um, and Meadows even kind of walked back his comments today. You know, he did criticize Republicans, including Ryan, for the deal that Trump took yesterday. But he was like, look, I don't I'm paraphrasing here, but he was like, you know, I don't think Ryan's going anywhere right now. So it's mostly just um, Republicans will continue to grumble, but there's no threat, at least at this point, of Ryan or McConnell losing their jobs or anything like that. Well, Isaac has the token New Yorker on the uh, show <laughs> since since Nancy did uh, throw it your way. Can you talk a little bit about uh, – I'm interested in, in Schumer's relationship with Trump. I mean it's sort of been up and down, but I'm also more interested in – where it can go from here. I mean, does it, is this for, foreshadow more deals with Schumer? Uh, I mean, can Democrats even afford to cut deals? Meaning, can Schumer and Pelosi actually cut deals? Can they uh, work with Trump without uh, totally inflaming the base? Well, a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's true that Schumer and Trump know each other a little bit, but it, they don't have a deep relationship, right? Like, it's not... Uh, like they spent a lot of time working together over the years when Schumer was a politician and uh, and Trump was uh, a real estate developer. Although Trump did donate to his campaign to Schumer's campaigns at, at points and uh, was useful to Schumer in that way. Uh, Schumer thought, and part of it was being so shell shocked from the election that he could find a way to work with Trump. Uh, and was talking that way during the transition, especially when they were talking about infrastructure. And Schumer was trying to say, yes, Democrats can totally work with Donald Trump on this and we'll figure out a way and it'll be good for everybody. A couple of things happened since then. Uh, first of all, Trump never got to infrastructure. We don't know if he ever will. Uh, also, there was a protest outside of Chuck Schumer's house at the beginning of the year uh, in Brooklyn that took him by surprise because that has not happened. Chuck Schumer has been an elected official in New York since I believe 1974 was when he was first elected to the assembly. Then he was in the house and then he was in the Senate. He's been in the Senate since 98 or 91 and 98. Uh, he has not encountered that kind of activity from the left attacking him, even in New York, maybe especially in New York. And it, change the way that he was thinking about what he had to do. Where things go from here is that Schumer is going to be caught in between uh, trying to find ways to say that Democrats are willing to work with the president and a base and more than just the base that don't want any kind of relationship between the Democratic Party and Donald Trump. See, Trump is just absolutely cannot be touched. Uh, the advantage that Schumer and Pelosi have, I would think, on this particular deal is that they didn't really compromise. They, as Heather was saying, there was a ploy, essentially, that the president bid on. Um, and 
it's a different kind of thing that we'd be talking about if they there is some deal that they're working out and a give and take and what what Pelosi and Schumer are willing to say okay to in exchange for something else. In this case, like Heather was saying, they, they didn't get the immediate move on DACA, but it does seem like Pelosi was able to get uh, a concession from Trump just uh, the, the day after making the the debt ceiling deal, which is that Trump tweeted, okay, well, n- there's nothing to worry about with DACA. Nobody's getting deported. Well, that's yeah, a real that, change. That's an interesting point about the tweet because I think the tweet was as much to reassure dreamers as it was these Democrats on the Hill who are upset that they didn't get a DACA fix. And the reason I say that is because when the decision was announced um, earlier this week by the attorney general, there were some talking points sent up to the Hill that were circulated, and it basically said dreamers should spend the next six months preparing to leave this country. And that made House Democrats particularly furious because they said when they heard that Pelosi and Schumer didn't try to get any kind of DACA fix or push for it, they're like, these, these dreamers, not only are their lives hanging in limbo, but they're being told they're going to be deported as soon as these six months are up. So that tweet helps reassure these dreamers, obviously. But, you know, I think Pelosi and her team were hoping that these frustrated lawmakers would see that and be able to rest a little bit easier, too. But think about how nutty it is that Nancy Pelosi is the person that the Republicans are going to build their campaigns against next year. And she has, uh, in the last couple of days, uh, gotten Donald Trump to uh, agree to a spending approach that she wants or debt ceiling approach uh, and uh, tweet something that she wants. Nancy Pelosi is dictating what Donald Trump does. (laughs) I mean, you're you're absolutely right, especially if Republicans don't get tax reform or some other major legislative accomplishment. What are they going to run on? They're going to run against Pelosi. Thanks so much for taking out the time for us, Heather. Hey, thanks, guys. And now a word from a sponsor. Our second segment today, the data point is nine. That's the number of paragraphs in former President Barack Obama's eye-catching statement in response to the Trump White House's decision to end DACA. And joining us for segment two today is Carla Marinucci, calling us from California and from San Francisco in particular. Hi, Carla. Hey, good to be with you. So let me start first with with you, Isaac. What is uh, President or former President Obama's strategy here? What did, tell us a little bit about the statement and how unusual is it that he would issue a statement? It is more usual that he would issue a statement than they were planning on uh, when Obama left office. <laughs> uh, they were really hoping that he would go quiet uh, and, uh, and, and be out of the fray. I know that that may be hard for some people to believe, but uh, from all the reporting that I've done on it and I've spent a lot of time reporting on Obama while president and then uh, in the months since, they really wanted to not be engaged in this uh, for a couple of reasons. Obama has a theory that the more he talks, the less other leaders step up and talk uh, in the Democratic Party, and that's bad for the future of the Democratic Party. He also sees what everybody else does, which is that every time that he says anything, Donald Trump reacts to it, and that that can cause things to go in a further direction than they might have been going otherwise. Uh, so the first statement was, that Obama put out as post-president was about the travel ban and all of the women's march and resistance stuff that was starting up right at the beginning of Trump's presidency. It was while Obama was still on vacation. He was engaged in it, but it was very much on purpose put out 
in the voice of uh, attributed to his spokesman. This statement was different. It was <clears throat> long. It was very intense and direct without being directly about the president or Donald Trump by name. This was a lot from a former president to say about another president. It's because this is an issue that, the pre- that, that President Obama feels very strongly about and felt like he needed to live up to what he said he would do, which is that if there was a decision by Donald Trump to change the DACA program, to change life for the Dreamers, that he would speak up. He said it a bunch of times. uh, But the first time that he said it was not publicly. It was in private in the meeting at the Oval Office the Thursday morning after the election uh, when Donald Trump came there for the first time. It was the first time that they had ever been in private conversation with each other. Ever. They'd had one phone conversation before, and it was when Obama called to c- congratulate Trump. And Obama says to him, in running through uh, some of the stuff that uh, they needed to go through in a, one president to the next, look, if you change dreamers, uh, you should think about it because think about how it's going to look on TV. All these kids, these uh, teenagers, and be rounded up, and it'll be going on cable news all the time. It'll look really bad for you. And you know you see the strategy of Obama in doing that, and he felt like that had broken through to Trump, and then publicly said, "If Trump changes the DACA program, I will publicly say something." So he did his private way of doing it, and then the the, the public statements, the warnings that he would do basically what he did. That's actually a pretty fascinating uh, post-presidential model that we're seeing unfold. You know, uh, a highly political one, but different in. Uh, different in the politics of, say, Bill Clinton. Because if you look at post-presidential models, at least in the recent era, you've got the golf-playing model uh, where you've done your service, you've done your time. Now you're just going to rake in some cash and play a lot of golf. That's the Jerry Ford. Right. And then you've got the uh, the Bill Clinton model, which was more uh, explicitly political. And when I say political, meaning getting involved in races, making calls, doing robocalls for people – being being a something of a strategist and endorsing candidates and well, part of that though is because he was expecting his wife to run for president, right. which turned out to be something that happened. And then you've got the George Bush model, which right. is to you know, keep quiet and, and not be a backseat driver. Now th- this suggests that Obama's pursuing something entirely different. Well, look, uh, th- another factor here is that you, we've never had a situation like this where one president is defining himself. It seems like almost entirely by doing the opposite of what the previous president did. So that puts Obama in a different place than uh, other presidents who have uh, turned over the keys to their successors. Uh, it also it comes with uh, Democrats in a full-scale freakout, not just about the state of America in their minds, but about the state of their party and not having any leaders that they can turn to in their minds other than uh, Obama. They don't. They're not interested, really. Uh, many of them in what Hillary Clinton has to say, but they do keep coming back to Obama. He has not, since he left the inauguration, had a conversation with Donald Trump, uh, but wants to make it so that he is not. It, this doesn't become this grudge match with with Trump. At the same time that he is trying to keep some of this going, I wonder what it will look like when we get into. Uh, some of the campaigning that we're expecting him to do during 2018. And then especially when it comes to 2020, how active of a force is he going to be out on the trail 
for during the general election. I don't think we'll see him endorse anybody in a primary. Probably the first time that we'll hear from him about the presidential election officially is when it's clear who the Democratic nominee is, even though he has some people that he would like to see uh, <laughs> running. He wants Deval Patrick to run. He's told Deval Patrick to run. He's talked to some other people too. Uh, but he, when, whether he goes as former President Obama campaigning directly against President Donald Trump in 2020 is, uh, to me, one of the giant question marks out there. Well, since we're talking about grudges against Donald Trump, I think that's a good segue to uh, turn our gaze to California and uh, uh, talk to Carla. Carla, can you talk a little bit about how is the DACA decision uh, playing out there in California? I'm especially curious, not just about how it's affecting the the environment, how how it's been received in the um, in California, but also I'm interested in uh, Silicon Valley's response to it because you know obviously we've we've read a lot out here and seen a lot of uh, activity and response, uh, most of it negative to uh, the president's decision. Yeah, I mean, Charlie, look, California has the biggest stakes here. It's the home to the largest number of immigrants, and one out of four. Uh, DACA grantees, uh, an estimated 220,000 of them are here in California. So, of course, you know, we're the, this is the state of resistance. That's what California likes to call itself. In Los Angeles, San Francisco, the big cities, we've seen, you know, universal outrage. And, of course, Senators Feinstein and Kamala Harris and elected officials at every level, including the big city mayors like Eric Garcetti, folks that are maybe looking toward 2020, are out in front on this one. Uh, but, but as you mentioned, Silicon Valley, I mean, with not more than 90% of these young people in jobs and schools, the outcry was especially big in the economic engine of Silicon Valley because tech folks in the Valley know the numbers uh, that 40% of the Fortune 500 companies have been started by immigrants. And about three-quarters of those top Fortune 500s have DACA grantees among their employees. So that's why you saw this army of Silicon Valley tech leaders come forward uh, not only to re to urge Trump not to rescind DACA, but you know to plead with him not to take a hit uh, to the economy. And many of the these stars, tech stars, we saw take action are immigrants themselves. We're talking about people like the Google CEO Sundar Pichai uh, from India, Microsoft CEO Satya Nantella from India, you know the Uber CEO from Iran. Um, we've seen some creative um, blowback on this, frankly, from Silicon Valley. Uh, th these tech folks know how to deliver sort of an effective message. The yesterday, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg went right to social media. Uh, he had a, a lot of dreamers at his home in Palo Alto uh, to talk about the president's decision. He got nearly 2 million views with that Facebook Live forum yesterday. So Silicon Valley really pushing back on this and you know, on the on the legal side, the legal machinery is also in play. California Attorney General Javier Becerra has been upfront and pushing back on Trump. He says he's prepared to challenge this decision in courts. Uh, a lot of people were surprised he didn't get in on that, you know, state lawsuit by 15 states yesterday. Uh, but many expected his decision will be his actions will be coming very soon. So, you know, top to bottom, uh, California is uh, a, a landscape. Um, and a state uh, that is going to push back on this one and uh, a lot of political implications that people think uh, in the future on this. I just want to piggyback on something that Carla said just about uh, the outrage among Silicon Valley and CEOs. I mean, this is not the first time that Trump has tangled with and, and pissed off these CEOs. You know, a bunch of people uh, 
business leaders quit his uh, various business advisory councils in really public fashion after the Charlottesville comments and his uh, three different statements on it in which he wavered about condemning white supremacists. And this is just a constituency that's a real natural constituency for Trump and could be helpful to him in pushing other legislative priorities like tax reform. Um, and yet he keeps making them angry. And now instead of sort of helping him push what he wants or you know helping him to sell the message of regulatory rollback or tax overhaul, He's making these CEOs furious with all of these immigration decisions which threaten their workforce and which many uh, business leaders, including ones in California, just don't support. And Carla, can, can you speak to the – I mean obviously one of the things uh, we're seeing is that Democrats uh, are you know, almost outbidding each other in the, in the uh, level and amount of uh, anti-Trump rage. Uh, you know, obviously that's a, you know, a, a ticket to entry in any California Democratic primary these days. But can you speak a little bit about how it might affect the broader House landscape in California? Because California, obviously, as you know better than anyone, has lots of congressional districts there and uh, quite a few competitive ones in 2018. And in fact, you know, you might argue that any chance that Democrats have of reclaiming a House majority is going to uh, be contingent on what happens in California, where you've got about seven House Republicans that are in uh, tough races in 2018. So does this have any effect at all? Do you, do you have any sense of that, Carla? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, look, you, you know, as you notice, seven vulnerable, uh, targeted Republicans in California, all of them in districts that voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And, you know, 24 is that magic number needed to flip the House. So California represents more than a quarter of that target. And Democrats here are very, very aware of that. And they're very aware of the fact that Latinos are the fastest growing electorate in California and that uh, Latinos, along with Asian voters, are expected to be energized in those 2018 midterms. So it's no wonder that you saw this week some of the vulnerable Republicans, like Daryl Issa, like Ed Royce, like Mimi Walters, uh, they've been supportive of President Trump, but, hey, they all issued statements reflecting deep concern, you know, for the DACA students, calling for Congress to come up for a solution. So people are looking at what's going on with DACA and saying uh, Trump and DACA may seal the deal for good for Republicans in California uh, when it comes to uh, Latino voters. Everyone's watching that, and you know these Republicans in the targeted districts are sweating this one out. Let me, let me get back to the Democratic Party, the, the, the roiling uh, Democratic Party in California. Uh, I loved your story today about Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein and the uh, high likelihood that she's going to get a very competitive primary challenge. I love it because uh, it's absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, it, to me, it's uh, emblematic of a party that's about to go through sort of something like uh, what the Republican Party has gone through for the last half decade with, uh, you know, veteran senators, veteran prove, proven senators getting really tough primary challenges from one of the uh, aggrieved flanks of the party. Can you talk a little bit about why is Senator Feinstein, whose uh, credentials aren't really in question, who is, uh, you know, one of the most serious legislators, uh, I think everyone in Washington would agree on that, someone who's deeply accomplished, uh, uh, what is her sin, what is her crime, and why do uh, progressives want to uh, oust her from office? Well, you know, you guys know, I mean, Feinstein is a battle-scarred <laughs> legislator. I mean, she's been the dominant force in California politics for more than a quarter of a century. But 
you know, she's she's also old school. She she had some very conciliatory comments about President Donald Trump recently at an event in San Francisco and about DACA uh, recently on uh, cable shows. And that hasn't played well with the left wing of the party, that centrist brand of politics that Feinstein has always um, espoused is not playing well with progressives, the Bernie-crat types, and millennials, and those young Latino voters who are expected to be a force in the 2018 election. So what's going on is that more and more, look, she's the oldest member of the U.S. Senate. Um, a, a lot of people feel that as she uh, aims for or possibly makes a decision to run for a fifth full term, that her time has passed. Now, she's got a lot of supporters, obviously, out here in California, a lot of folks say that she's still invulnerable. But now the buzz is starting to happen out here. Uh, and and a lot of it is centering on a younger Latino uh, powerhouse here in California, Kevin DeLeon. He's the uh, president of the California State Senate. He's the uh, son of immigrants himself. He has become sort of a leader in this whole California state of resistance movement. People are starting to look at him very seriously and saying, this is the kind of progressive Democrat who could pose some real problems to her going into a general election. Uh, younger, Latino, um, and far to the left, and that is where California increasingly, the Democratic Party is sliding. Uh, the middle is falling out, and uh, Feinstein could face uh, uh, some very, very uh, interesting, uh, uh, dramatic, I think, uh, a contest if she decides to run. In 2018. But isn't there also a regional uh, contrast here? I mean, you've got De Leon from Southern California, from Los Angeles, uh, Feinstein from Northern California. I mean, what, what's going on out there? What are you people in Northern California doing to keep hostage all the statewide offices? Because you've had the two, the Northern California has had the two Senate seats in Boxer and Feinstein in, you know, uh, for decades. Gavin Newsom, Jerry Brown. Why are all the statewide offices held by you crazy Northern Californians? <laughs> And that's because the voter turnout is so much higher in Northern California, uh, and the media market is so, uh, I, I don't know, splintered in Southern California. To get any kind of political message on TV in Los Angeles, I mean, you have to beat out the daily car chase, and it's really a hard, uh, it's a hard lift for these uh, the folks in Southern California. Uh, Northern California folks are, seem to be uh, just uh, they turn out more at the polls, and that has created uh, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, etc. Uh, so th- this is one of the challenges, I think, for Kevin DeLeon and anybody who tries to take on Feinstein. This could all make it very, very interesting, uh, and it's going to take a, a lot of money in California. Some people point out Feinstein's name recognition almost a hundred percent here. She's got uh, a majority in the poll in the polls who approve her performance. So it's not going to be easy, and it could cost lots of dough, maybe $40 million or more, uh, to get any kind of traction against Diane Feinstein out here. Well, Carla, thank you so much for taking out all this time for us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our third data point today is 15, as in 15%. That's President Trump's target for the top corporate tax rate. The current rate is 35%. Why does the president's number matter? Because almost no one working on the issue thinks that chasm between the numbers can be bridged or that Trump's 15 percent number is workable. So, Nancy, you've been writing a lot about this, spending some time thinking about it, walking out on tax reform. Is it even possible? What needs to happen to get that uh, top rate, top corporate tax rate to 15 percent? 
Yeah, so I don't want to bore everyone with all the wonky details, but basically in order to bring the rate down to 15%, you would have to find a ton of money throughout the tax code to pay for that. Otherwise, it would really add a huge amount of money to the deficit. And so uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is sort of like the CBO for taxes, has done some work before that shows that even if you got rid of like every tax break, it still wouldn't be reasonable to bring it down to 15%. And so what you need to bring it down to 15% would be like a new type of tax, like a consumption tax or the border adjustment tax that Speaker Paul Ryan had wanted and the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Kevin Brady, had wanted. But, uh, you know, the big six who are these uh, group of congressional leaders and White House officials negotiating the tax package put the kibosh on that in mid-July. So basically, Trump recently, as as recently as this week, has become completely fixated on this 15 percent, even though all of the negotiators that have been working on this behind the scenes for months have basically decided that it's not possible. Uh, You know, they can't bring it down to that. But meanwhile, he has made this kind of the new sticking point. Uh, Secretary Mnuchin has also seemed to follow him there. But just as recently as this morning, you know, uh, Paul Ryan at a breakfast uh, sponsored by The New York Times talked about how that wasn't possible and how it would more likely end up in the, you know, 22 uh, percent range, 2022. And so it's just like sort of another, just to pull back for a minute, it's another instance on policy of, you know, all these people working very hard behind the scenes to come up with a policy solution, which the Republican Party largely wants. And then President Trump coming in kind of at the, you know, eighth hour and undercutting a lot of it by making a very extreme demand, which will probably screw up the negotiations and also put congressional tax writers in a tricky spot this fall as they try to develop uh, a more serious plan because it's going to pit him against them. And can I just walk walk this back one second? Who are, who are the big six, and why are they called the big six? Is it because they're really tall? Or? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> good who question. Are these so they're huge. The titans of the of the administration. Um, no, basically, it's just congressional leaders and uh, White House officials. So it's Gary Cohn, who's the director of the National Economic Council. It's the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. It's a uh, Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, House Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, Kevin Brady, who chairs the Ways and Means Committee, and Orrin Hatch, who's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. And partly they've just been working together to show, you know, partly it's like a political messaging thing to show unity, particularly after health care, to show that, you know, Congress and the administration has been on the same page to work together on tax reform, and they are doing things. And so the fact that Trump is undercutting them uh, also, I think, poses some problems. And I think this 15 percent fixation will actually be something to watch because I think it will be a major issue in the coming weeks. And uh, Isaac, can you talk a little bit about the – what are the prospects for this be, being a bipartisan endeavor, meaning uh, are Democrats going to get on board on this? I mean we saw a little bit of, of the Trump wooing of Senator Heitkamp of North Dakota this week. They seem like they're more interested in at least making the show of cooperation than they were on Obamacare repeal. But it does seem like baked now very deep into the Democratic psyche is this sense that they are going to just wait to see what the Republicans produce. They don't need to uh, get nailed down on any policy point, on any commitment on any of this until there's a Republican plan. Now, they'll say, I'm in favor of tax reform. Uh, I think we should do it. Maybe some of the broad stuff in principle they'll be behind. But 
I don't think that we're likely to see too many people working on a bill together with Republicans for uh, some time, if at all. The one caveat that I put to that is that there is this group, which sounds like just one of those ridiculous groups in Congress and in some ways is called the Problem Solvers Caucus, <laughs> right? Uh, which is uh, – no, I'd say that's, that's the – that is the response that, that, uh, that a mention of that group tends to bring. It is – I think it's 18 Republicans and 18 Democrats uh, who are from all around the country and – All of them uh, in competitive districts, I assume. No, uh, but some of them in competitive districts. Um, and you know the, the co-chairs of it uh, is this guy named um, uh, Tom Reed from New York who is a Republican, was one of the first Republicans to back Trump, elected Republicans. Uh, is in a district that was a Democratic district not that long ago, but is relatively safe as a Republican district. But he is a target. And Josh Gottheimer is the Democratic co-chair of it who just won a Republican seat uh, last year and uh, is a target, although there's not yet a candidate to go against him for the Republicans for next year. They have been having meetings and they had one just this past week of – uh, people from the Treasury Department and others coming in and talking, and they're saying that they might be the way that this moves forward, uh, that they'll be the, the vehicle for it. So is it fair to say that this kind of hands-off uh, approach that Democrats are taking, is, is this like almost like a corollary of what is the Bill Clinton principle where when your uh, enemies are burning themselves down, you sort of step aside and, and allow them to do it, you never, you never get involved in it? I, a couple of weeks ago for the Off Message podcast, which uh, I'm obligated to plug several times. Uh, I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, I talked to Jerry Nadler, and that was in the wake of Charlottesville. Uh, Jerry Nadler is a congressman from the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the most liberal uh, members of the House. Uh, not a kind of light your hair on fire guy. Uh, but one of the things I talked to him about was what September was going to look like and what Democrats would do on the debt ceiling. And... Uh, he said on that, on the uh, continuing resolution on the budget, whatever it is, that the democratic approach is, you know, we have no power. Uh, we are nowhere close to power. And so we are going to be fine just sitting back and seeing what the Republicans can do here. And I said to him, what does that mean that if you guys don't provide the votes, the government could shut down? We could bust through the debt ceiling. This is, of course, before the Pelosi-Schumer deal with Trump. And he said, yeah, that's fine. And that does seem to be a pretty good read on where a lot of the Democratic thinking is. I just want to pull back for one second, too, and talk about something that another issue that's been going on with taxes, and I think that this will play into whether or not Democrats support it, is Trump basically, and even yesterday in the speech that he gave in North Dakota, he keeps conflating tax reform with tax cuts. And I feel like that will be sort of where that ends up will be key to whether or not it appeals to Democrats, because everyone always, the tax code is very complicated. Everyone always wants to simplify it and get rid of, you know, all these breaks for special interests. But it's harder to sort of, particularly for Democrats, to justify just giving a huge tax cut to corporations and wealthy people who tend to benefit from these sorts of things, like getting rid of the estate tax. And, you know, if you get rid of some, uh, you know, breaks that hurt hurt wealthy people or taxes, you know, that's something that's harder to make it bipartisan. And I do feel like that's where we're headed. And the fact that Trump keeps sort of doing these Freudian slip ups of calling it just tax cuts, we're going to do tax cuts, whereas the big six is really allegedly working on tax reform is quite interesting to me. Is Trump's rhetoric a reflection of him being sort of crazy like a fox? Or is it a reflection of the fact that he's just not familiar with 
the complexity of the legislative process and what's necessary to move something with as many moving parts as tax reform? I mean, I think it could be both. I think that it shows, though, that he is, you know, primarily focused on the tax cuts. And I think that's why he keeps coming back to bringing the corporate rate down to 15 percent. Like he's not talking, for instance, about how he wants to lower the individual rates obsessively. He's talking about this corporate rate and businesses and that's what he wants. You know, he's not talking about cleaning out the complexity of the And it builds into a whole thinking here, right? He wants to bring jobs back to America. So he wants to businesses to be hiring and expanding in America. And so the link, that is how he gets to, we've got to cut the corporate tax rate because he says companies are leaving because of that. And, you know, he's dealt with businesses and he's talked with uh, business leaders as president-elect and president. So I know you guys are frequent flyers on Air Force One. So let me ask you, uh, what, why go to North Dakota? Why does the president go there uh, with Heidi Heitkamp? What's in it for the White House? Why do you do that? He, like, he went to Missouri last week uh, where Claire McCaskill is running for re-election. Uh, he went to North Dakota uh, this week. It does seem like there is some political thinking going on about this, and that's totally normal for a president to guide travel around where the political pressure points are. Uh, but the the difference in with how he treated McCaskill, and she did not get a ride on Air Force One, and then he said at the rally – you know, if she doesn't vote for it, you got to get rid of her. Uh, versus what he said about uh, first inviting Heidkamp on the plane and then not saying that kind of stuff about her uh, when they were in North Dakota is is striking. And uh, I don't know if it makes sense beyond the fact that Heidkamp met with him when he was president elect during the transition, and he doesn't have a relationship with McCaskill. Uh, otherwise, they're just two Democrats who are in uh, Republican. Ter- territory, or at least Republican-friendly territory, uh, who are both up for re-election next year. So there's no, there, there's no. He'd like to have both Senate seats or either one. Well, and that is the White House's plan. Like the Trump, the president is much more engaged on tax reform than he is on health care. Um, you know, behind the scenes, I think he's much more willing to sell it. And that is the plan to have him sort of keep this drumbeat of visiting these states where these vulnerable senators are up. And, you know, there's 10 of them. And so I think we'll see either 10 of those visits or, you know, op-eds in the states. That is definitely part of – I think that's one of the core elements of their congressional strategy for tax reform is to bring those people on. But I still don't understand what what's in it for him at the end of the day. Like what is he delivering to his base? I mean it's not – maybe I'm missing something here. But it's not like his populist base is clamoring for, for tax reform and for corporate tax rates to get down to 15 percent. Well, that's what I think is so interesting is there's this gap between the messaging and the reality of what will potentially happen. So, for instance, the White House this week or next week is going to unveil this website or part of their web – part of WhiteHouse.gov about tax reform that tells these stories of – you know, individual Americans in all 50 states and how they've been hurt by the tax code. And, you know, in these calls that they're having with conservative groups, the White House keeps urging people to talk about tax reform in terms of helping middle class families and wage growth. Um, You know, and that's really the message that the president himself keeps saying. But the reality is, is that behind the scenes, a lot of the negotiating and obsessions are about the corporate rate, you know, uh, corporate breaks, like which ones to try to curb. And I think that 
you know, they're really going to try to message this as something that will unleash economic growth. Whereas, you know, in the past, like last few decades, the supply side economics idea of Republicans hasn't always worked out. You know, Republicans have historically always loved slashing tax rates. And that hasn't always brought about economic growth. And it's interesting to me that they are still trying to do supply side, but they're just trying to message it like it's the most populist bill you've ever seen. Nancy, thank you as ever. Oh, thanks for having me. I loved it. Isaac, thanks. I would say thank you to you in Latin, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> Agricola? Agricola. Agricolarum? As always, thank you to our listeners. If you like the show, remember to subscribe, rate, and write a review in Apple Podcasts. And email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator, Bill Cookman. We'll talk to you next week.